0: I don't know if you noticed, but this, the songs you sang this morning had a, a focus. Did you catch that? It should be the focus of all our gatherings. Christ, he's the one foundation of the church upon which we build our lives as members of his church. He is the redeemer that we glory in, that we find satisfaction in. He is the steady anchor for our souls that we look to when the you know, the, 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 our lives are going through the storm, and then He's a friend. He's He's a friend. He's a friend that we can talk to, we can pray to, we can depend on. He is good to us. And uh, and and this morning now we're going to look at His Word, and we're going to encounter Jesus again. And as you're turning to Mark chapter six, we're going to look at verses forty-five to fifty-six. I want you just to reflect on those songs we've just sung, to think about those authors who wrote those songs, and how they thought of Jesus, and how they felt about Jesus, that they felt that Jesus was an anchor that they'd cling to to get through the hardest times, that the authors felt that Jesus was a friend that was worth talking to and depending on, relying on, that That Jesus was the foundation, is the foundation of the church, is our hope, he's our stronghold, our refuge, that, that really Jesus is the one who satisfies us, that Jesus is the one who fills the ache that we experience as sinners in a fallen world. And then I want you to ask yourself, is this the way that you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus this way? That He is the one you go to. That He is the one who satisfies you. That He is the one you depend on. That He is the one you walk through life with. That He is not just some pieces of doctrine you've puzzled together, ideas in your mind, kind of vague, abstract understandings that have more to do with religion Rather than a relationship with a true and risen Lord who is genuinely compassionate and there and strong and kind and able and willing. Is that the Jesus you know? And is that the relationship you have with him? See, I I bring that up because I want to say what has been said many times before. And that is that it's possible to know a lot about Jesus without knowing Jesus. It's possible to know a lot about Jesus and about the things he's done than to actually know Jesus. You could have all kinds of information about Jesus and still not know what it means to have him as a friend or as an anchor or as a foundation or as the one that satisfies you. It's possible to have your doctrine about him correct while in your heart you're cold and you're distant there's a difference between knowing about something and knowing something isn't there and we all know this to be true if you ever have hiked a mountain you know that mountain more than the people who have merely looked at the mountain from a distance there are people who maybe look at the mountain and they can study the mountain they could open up their geology books and know all about the soils and the rocks on that mountain. They can learn about the animals on the mountain. They can even study the trails that climb up that mountain. But there's something fundamentally different about the one who has been on the trail and has seen the sights and has breathed in that mountain there and has looked from the top and has experienced the mountain in an entirely different way. And I think there are some people, maybe even it's you this morning, that you you know about Jesus, but you know about him more from a distance you can't say all the things that these songwriters said about jesus that he really is a friend to you that he really is someone you're looking to that he really is a source of strength and satisfaction to you now the reason i want to introduce the text this morning with that idea of the difference between knowing about jesus and actually knowing jesus is because i think in this text and in Actually, this kind of section that we've been in, Jesus has been trying to get his disciples to know him in a different way, merely than from what they thought about him. Uh, He's taking them through various circumstances and events, uh, scenarios where they are encountering Jesus in an entirely new way, and whatever preconceived ideas they've had about Jesus, they have had to have corrected with a true picture of Jesus a right picture of Jesus and I think that the same could be done in our hearts this morning that maybe some of us need to have our ideas of Jesus corrected or maybe the right ideas that we have about Jesus need to be brought to life that we see him as he truly is so here's what's been happening if you're there in Mark chapter 6 you've You've been following along. We've seen Jesus doing all kinds of amazing acts that have demonstrated again and again that he's more than a mere man. We saw this at the end of chapter 4, if you remember, when he calmed the sea. Remember this? He spoke, and the, whole wind, the, 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 the storm stopped, the wind stopped, the waves stopped. And then after that, he, they get to the shore in chapter 5. You see that in verses 1 to 20, when he casts out this army of demons from this possessed man. And then from that, he goes straight into a crowd, and he heals a woman who's been sick for 12 years, and then he raises a little girl from the dead. He's continually showing that that he has uh, power beyond any mere mortal, and he's doing these amazing acts, uh, demonstrating his miracle-working power. He then, at chapter 6, verse 7 to 13, he sends out the disciples, he gives them power to Uh, They are then preaching the gospel, and they are casting out demons, and they are healing, and they return. And what we saw last week, uh, yes, he went to pray. Actually, the week before that, he did another amazing miracle where there's thousands of people. The text calls it 5,000, but it was 5,000 plus women plus children. So there's many, many more there. And he feeds them all with a little boy's lunch. And so again and again and again, the disciples are encountering these these things with Jesus that they they don't have a category for it. He's not a rabbi like the others other rabbis in that time. He's not a, a man who's just a good teacher, as someone some people had believed. He, he's he's something bigger than this, and yet the disciples are are not quite getting it. And so it's almost as if. Jesus continues to bring them through, experience after experience, so that they can really encounter Jesus for who he is. Uh, Let's look at the text. And I want to show you in chapter 6, verse 45, we're going to read all the way to 56, and we're going to see Jesus doing another miracle, another event here before his disciples that demonstrates who he is and gives them a clearer picture of himself. Verse 45, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. That was what we looked at last week. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. But their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many touched it were made Well, uh, we're going to see Jesus again in this text. Really, that's what Mark is doing, right? You've you've caught that? That what we need is to see Jesus, and Mark is bringing us before Jesus again and again and again because the greatest need that we have is to have an accurate picture of the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. If we don't have a clear picture on who He is, we're going to flounder through life. And so Mark is continually saying, "Here's who He is. Do you see Him? Here's what He did. Can can you tell who He is? Here's." Here's what you need to see about Jesus. And again and again and again, it's put on the pages of Scripture so we might know him. And so here's going to be three points, three headings to the sermon uh, that you can mark down to help us kind of have handles as we go through the text. One, we're going to see that Jesus sends. Two, we're going to see that Jesus shows. And three, we're going to see that Jesus speaks. Okay? We're going to see that Jesus sends, Jesus shows, Jesus speaks. Let's start with sending. Jesus sends them into suffering mark that down and think about that one jesus sends them into suffering what do you mean eric how does he send them into suffering let me point out so you see what's happening here verse 45 immediately he made his disciples get into the boat that word made is a stronger word than you might expect that comes across in the english in greek it is a strong word that commands It is a commanding word and jesus is making the disciples get in the boat and head over to Bethsaida. It's kind of in the afternoon, as you remember from the previous section, after the feeding of the 5,000, that the day was kind of coming to an end. And if you remember from last week, we mentioned that part of the reason Jesus sent them away so quick and dismissed the crowds was that the crowds wanted to make Jesus their king then and there. And so they're trying to make him king, and Jesus says, It's not time. Okay, it's not time, and he sends the crowds away, and then he says, "Disciples, get back in our boat, and I want you to go across to Bethsaida." He he's making them do this. I I wonder if the disciples are a little bit confused by this. Jesus, uh, what do you mean? Uh, You're you're going to stay? You're going to leave us? Why? Why? There's not a lot of. Information given to these poor disciples, all they're told is to get get in the boat and get going across. They say, go to Bethsaida. And so he dismisses the crowd while they're getting in the boat. And verse 46 says, and he had taken leave of them, and he went up the mountain to pray. So that whole rest, remember, that Jesus was talking about a few sections ago? Now Jesus is getting this alone time, but not the disciples. They're being sent, and they're on this boat. He's up praying. Disciples on the boat. Evening comes, so so the evening was kind of beginning to come at the end of the previous section. Now evening is here, and this is that time after the afternoon, but before it's really dark. So it's kind of a twilight as the disciples are going, and it says the boat was out on the sea. Some translations would say it's in the middle of the sea. It's not the ocean. This is not the Atlantic. This is the Sea of Galilee that they would have been in about four miles wide. They were probably in the middle, about two miles in. And Jesus is all by himself on the land, and it's as if he can see them from where he is that would be possible, judging by the geography and even the time of year. They would Scholars suggest it would have actually been quite easy for Jesus to see them out on the, 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 the sea there. And so uh, evening is there. The boat's at the sea. He's on the land. He's up on that mountain. He has the perspective. He's watching. And it says, verse 48, "...he saw that they were making headway painfully." for the wind was against them. So so let's just recap a little bit. You remember what's been going on with these disciples? You remember what they've gone through? If you go back to chapter 6, verse 7 to 13, that they were sent on this mission to preach, and they were to go from town to town, village to village. And if people listened, they stayed there, and they kept teaching them the, the message of the kingdom. Remember that? And they... If they were rejected, then they would go on to the next place. What that meant was, it was probably weeks on end of them not sleeping in their own bed, going from town to town, long walks, village to village, house to house. It would have been an exhausting thing for them. And so they think, they, they get back, and Jesus says, yeah, let's go away for a retreat. That, the, he, Jesus has heard what they've done. Let's go away for a retreat. But then what happens? You remember? They try to get away. The crowds follow them. Jesus has compassion. They get out on the land. Jesus feeds them. Jesus does this miracle and feeds these thousands of people. So the retreat that the disciples anticipated, guess what? Cancel. They don't get it. And so Jesus then, after the crowd is fed, he sends them away. But at this point, it's been a long, long, long day. And those disciples really have not recovered from the time that they were on their missionary tour. They would be wiped. And Jesus then kind of perplexes them. By saying, get in the boat and get going. And so they start off, and what happens is this wind picks up. This wind picks up as they're heading, way, they're heading through, and they're m- not making any progress at all. It says they're making headway painfully. That word painfully, you can see that there. It's the same word in Greek that's used in Mark chapter 1 to describe what the demons didn't want Jesus to do to them. Don't torment me, the demons said. That word could be translated literally torture. That word could be translated as torment. In other words, these disciples after days, perhaps weeks on end of go, 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 go ministry are now in this boat. The night is upon them. The sun has gone down. They're, they're not going with the wind. They're going against the wind. They're at the oars, and it's a kind of torment. Could you imagine? You ever been in a season of life where you're sleepless, physically exhausted, confused about what in the world is going on with your life, why you are where you are, what have you put me into, Jesus, why am I here. It's the middle of the night. The disciples are rowing at the oars, but they are exhausted emotionally, exhausted spiritually, exhausted physically. Their arms probably feel like rubber trying to continue at the oars, but they're not making any headway at all. They're probably wet. It's not a huge boat that they're on. The wind's probably creating some splashes. This would be miserable. You ever been there? They probably have a ton of questions. Jesus, what in the world? We could have stayed with you. We could have gone on the mountain with you, right? I mean, we needed the rest. I thought that's what we were doing in the first place. Why? Why? And I'm wondering if these men, in the middle of the night as this continues on, are asking these questions, even perhaps harboring some doubts. What are you doing, Jesus? What a bad decision, Jesus. Jesus. This would have been so easier, Jesus, if you just let us go on the mountain with you, Jesus. I wonder if that's ever been where you've, you've let your mind go. That life has become so perplexing and so confusing and you're so exhausted. And yet life keeps getting harder and things keep getting more complex and issues keep coming up. And it's one thing after another and you can hardly keep track. And you're wondering what in the world, Jesus, I thought, you know, this is not what I need. You know, Lord, I was praying for rest. I was praying for rejuvenation and refreshment in my spirit. And here you are making my life really hard. I'm wondering if that's what the disciples are wondering. Uh, Think about this. It says that Jesus didn't go out to them until the fourth watch of the night. What that means is that the afternoon, which has been about 6 and 7 p.m. as the sun's going down, the fourth watch of the night, the Romans divided the night in the four watches, you had six p.m. to 9 p.m. You had 9 p.m. to midnight, midnight to 3 a.m., and 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Those were the four watches. The last watch of the night was 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. That's when Jesus came. In other words, Jesus knew that they were struggling for probably nine hours. It did not go to them. He let them struggle. Here's one of the things that this means is that Jesus' biggest priority for your life and for the lives of his disciples Listen to this. Jesus' biggest priority for your life is not necessarily that your life is easy and comfortable. It's going to be all fun and games. And even when you feel like the greatest need you have is a retreat, that Jesus may not give that to you. He doesn't always do the things we think we need. Sometimes Jesus will send you into suffering sometimes jesus will put you straight into perplexity and confusion jesus will confuse you because our thoughts are not his and he is infinitely wiser than you and he has plans for you that you don't quite understand that we couldn't possibly understand we're not the god of the entire universe orchestrating all things for his glory and our good How could we possibly know what's best for us? But he knows, and he's more interested in something profound happening in you, in deep happening in you, in transformative happening in you, than you getting the immediate comfort you're asking for. So Jesus sends them into suffering. It's like what C.S. Lewis said about Aslan. He's not a tame lion. You won't be able to just ask him for something and get exactly what you want, like he's some divine slot machine. He's got bigger plans for you. He's working on you in ways that you don't think you need to be worked on. He wants to draw out things from you that you don't even see yet. He's going to give you what you don't know you need. And isn't that good of him? How would we grow otherwise? How would we escape the blind spots in our lives? Unless he brought us through such things that are so uncomfortable that expose us to the depth an extremity of our need of him. He asks of us something deeper than that we have the capacity to give. And he's never leaving us. He sends them into suffering. But but that's not it. Let's, Let's look at the next part. He also shows. Jesus shows them his glory. Let's look at verse 48. He saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. So about nine hours later, ish, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. I love how Mark just throws that in there like it's nothing. Like yeah, he came. He's just walking on the sea, like as if the re- he doesn't apologize for it. He doesn't try to explain it. He doesn't try to prove that it, it's possible. He doesn't add anything. It's because he's he's got. He just says he just came walking on the sea. He just came walking on the sea. And then it says this, he meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. He, he just came walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. Are you going, what? <laughs> he, he meant to pass by them? Like he's just on his way to the other side, like he's just walking across? Oh, hey guys, you, you struggling in the boat? Sorry. Well, see you later. I'm going to just meant to pass by you. Just making my way across. Sorry for you guys. You actually have to use the oars. I'm just going to walk. I, isn't that a bizarre thing that it says he, he, he meant to pass by them? I actually think understanding that becomes the key to what he's doing here because this is fascinating. I want to point out a few things. First of all, that liberal theologians and, and those who don't take the Bible seriously, they don't take it at his word, have found all kinds of ways to explain this away. It's it's comical. I mean, just in the same way, the feeding of the 5,000, guys get all these kind of wacko ways to interpret this, just to pull out the supernatural because they don't like it. It's the same here. There there's some who say that, that Jesus was actually on the shore. It was a very foggy night. The disciples weren't that far out into the lake yet, and it looked like that maybe he was walking on the water because of the fog, but they were really mistaken. Some have gone further and say, well, it does say they're in the middle of the lake, so It was actually more probable that Jesus knew about a little sandbar that no one else knew about. Some have even suggested there were stones just under the surface of the water. And there goes Jesus tiptoeing across, making sure he steps on those stones to get all the way to the middle. And the disciples were mistaken. He wasn't really walking on water, of course. How could he do that? That's impossible. He's just a mere man. That doesn't deal with the text. It's not what Mark says. Mark says he walked on the sea. And actually, when we understand what's going on here, it becomes more clear why he did this. Why did he walk on the sea? What was going on? There's something far more profound that Mark is trying to show us about Jesus. And what he's trying to show us is is captured by this word. You could underline it. I would encourage you to think about this. It says, he meant to pass by them. To pass by them. If you look at the book of Job chapter 8 or sorry chapter 9 verse 8 it's said of God that he stretched out the heavens and he trampled on the waves of the sea that God is described as so mighty and powerful that he and he alone can walk on the sea in psalm 93 verse 4 God is described as mightier than the thunders of many waters And mightier than the waves of the sea. And so Jesus is going to pass them by walking on the sea. Listen. And in doing so, He is doing what the Old Testament said only God can do. He is doing something that only God can do. And that word, pass by, or that phrase, to pass by, is used... In the Old Testament to describe God revealing his glory to people who were tired worn out and needed encouragement that was actually this word to pass by when 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 describing God is describing when he reveals himself to a weary and discouraged person this is the idea of theophany? It's a. Have you ever heard that word, theophany? Time for you to learn a new th- word this morning. If you don't know it, theophany, made up of two Greek words, theos, meaning God, and phaneion, which means appearance. A theophany is the fiz- or the visible appearance of an invisible God. So God appears in theophany. He he at times appears to the people of Israel. He did it to Moses at the burning bush the pillar of fire that led the Israelites out of the wilderness. Uh, you could remember Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, where he saw a vision of the throne room of God. That was a theophany. God revealing to the sights, the, the physical sense of sight, a little bit about who He is. And if you go to Exodus 33, probably the, the paramount theophany in the Old Testament, You get this language of passing by. Let me encourage you to turn there real quick. Let me show you something. Exodus 33, verse 18. Moses has been discouraged. His people have just been caught up into the sin of worshiping that golden calf. He wonders, what in the world are these people doing? How is it? that we're ever going to be out of the wilderness. He's so discouraged. Verse 18 of chapter 33 in Exodus, Moses says to God, Please show me your glory. This is our heart's desire, isn't it? This is what you long for, the deepest longing of the human heart, to see the glory of God. Moses cries out, Show me your glory. And verse 19, And God says, I will make my goodness, you see it, pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, or Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, And while my glory passes by, there it is again, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And then you go down to verse 6 of chapter 34. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, and He proclaims His glorious name. That Phrase, passed by, passed by, is what God is going to do to reveal to Moses part of his glory. Moses can't see the fullness of the glory of God, but a part of the glory of God. He's going to pass by. This same language is used in 1 Kings 19, verse 11, when Elijah is so distraught, he thinks, I'm the only faithful Israelite left, and he's complaining to God, and God basically says, I'm going to pass by you. Let me pass by you. I will show you who I am. I will reveal to you my glory. And so when Mark is saying about Jesus that he meant to pass them by, what is he saying? He's saying this. I am going to show you who I am. I am going to reveal to you my glory. Mark is saying that Jesus intended by walking on the water to reveal That He is glorious and majestic. And that He, just like what happened in the Old Testament, He can reveal His glory to the people who need it. Now follow this. Jesus saw the agony of the disciples. He saw their weariness. He saw their perplexity. He knew their confusion. And His initial desire was not to calm the storm. he was provoked in his compassionate heart when he saw the struggle and he did not though he could have he did not speak from the mountain and say stop storm he did not tell the wind to blow in the right direction to get him across faster he did not what did jesus want to do in fact if you look at the word he meant to walk past them he meant to pass them by he meant that word meant is a word that connotes His desire. That the wish, the desire of Jesus was to show them something about Himself. About His glory and His majesty. He wanted the disciples to see it. That He is God. That He is God incarnate. That He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That He is the God of Moses, that he is the God of Sinai, that he is the God of Israel, the Holy One, that he is him. Jesus is saying, look, I walk the seas. I trample the waves. I am over them. They are mine. I made them. I want to pass by so that you see my glory. And sometimes we are begging God to take away the storm. We are pleading with God to make our lives easier. We are asking God to remove the difficulty. We are like Paul begging, God, take away the thorn. Take away the thorn out of my flesh. It's killing me. And Jesus says, no. I'm not going to take away the thorn. Because you need to be humbled. Because you need to see your weakness. Because you need to learn to depend on me. And Jesus saw them agonizing in torment in the waves, utterly exhausted, beyond their capacity to keep going, and he let them continue to suffer. But what was moved in his heart was, I'm going to give them something more profound than peace right now. I'm going to give them something more profound than comfort right now. I'm going to show my glory to them. That's what they need. And he comes. And friends, that's what you need. And if you're going through some pain right now, I know that what you need is to look to Christ and you need to see Him truly and accurately. And our fears and our worries and our agonies and our torments are helped when we understand who our Lord is. And if we have a puny Jesus, we will be puny Christians. If we don't have an anchor for the soul, we will be blown and tossed by every wind of suffering. that Jesus wanted to pass them by. There is, as I said at the beginning, a Christianity, a professed Christianity, a quote-unquote Christianity that doesn't really know Christ. They like Jesus. They're pro-Jesus. But they have a miniature Jesus, a fake Jesus, a statue Jesus, not a living Jesus, not a divine Jesus, not an infinitely wise and majestic and glorious Jesus. they got a Jesus they can put in their pocket, a Jesus they can control, a Jesus that's more like a household God, a Jesus that they ask things of, things really for their own sake, their own comfort, their own lives. And because they have such a small Jesus, and because they have no such anchor, their lives are all over the place, to and fro. They're filled with fear and anxiety and worry and panic and despair because they don't understand the greatness and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ for who He truly is. J.I. Packer wrote that book, Knowing God, which I would recommend to you. Go read Knowing God if you haven't. His whole reason for writing this book, he says, is this. He says, the conviction behind the book is that ignorance of God, both or ignorance both of his ways and of the practice of communion with him, lies at the root of much of the church's weakness today. He says, disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you, this way you can waste your life and lose your soul. He says, we've got to know God. Just as here the disciples needed to know Christ. That Christ's desire to help them was to show His glory. Let's see what happens. He means to pass them by, verse 49. But when they saw Him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. They, they were they were terrified. So Jesus passes by. He's walking on the water. They understand that this is no mere mortal. They, 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 they don't have a category for what's happening. It says they thought he was a ghost. That word in Greek is phantasma. It's where we get the word phantom. Uh, it was actually common belief by pagans in the first century that the waves and the seas and the waters were haunted by water ghosts. And... Here they are picking up a pagan idea that it might be a ghost. This ghastly figure coming through the fog in the middle of the night. They don't know who it is. They say it must be a ghost. They're terrified. They're crying out. And yet I also think there's more happening here. This is consistent with every other theophany that we encounter in the Scripture, isn't it? I mean, think of what happened to Isaiah when he saw God. He curses himself and cries out, Woe is me. What happened to John in Revelation chapter 1 when he saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ? He fell on his face like a dead man. What happened to Ezekiel in chapter 1? The same thing. To behold the glory of God is so wondrous and amazing and majestic. We cannot see it and not be moved. It it challenges our humanity to have even a glimpse of God. Moses must be hid Behind a rock. And even then it's only the hind parts of God that he's allowed to see. He does not even see the fullness of the glory of God. And here the disciples seeing something of the glory and majesty of Christ. They're in terror. They're in fear. They're confused. But this is what they needed to experience. And this is actually true of us who encounter God without Christ. Without knowing who he is. There is only terror because God is so outside of us and so holy that if we don't have a Savior in coming before Him, there is only terror before God. So it's why we need a Savior. We need to know Christ and who He is. This brings us to our third point. It says they saw Him and they were afraid. They were terrified. But immediately He spoke to them. There's our third point. Jesus speaks words of comfort. Jesus speaks words of comfort. It says that he said to them, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Look at the first and the last sections of that. It's really three statements. First and and last are really two sides of the same coin. First, he's addressing the heart of these disciples. And the idea also could be translated as as take courage. Uh, Let courage fill your hearts. To those who are weary and exhausted, you need to hear from Christ. Have courage. Have courage in the darkness and then in the storm and in the perplexity. Fill your heart with courage. And then the, the flip side, don't be afraid. Don't let fear come up and strangle you. Don't let fear dominate your mind. Don't let anxiety control you. Do not fear. But you might ask, well, why? I'm in the middle of a storm. how, How is that even possible? Well, it's that middle section that makes it possible. He says, it is I. Knowing Christ is the difference. Knowing Christ is everything. Knowing who he is. Knowing who it is that walks the storm. Knowing who it is that comes to us. Knowing who it is that is over all creation. That makes all the difference between anxiety and courage. We can face these things if we can hear those words with the ears of faith and know it is I, it is Christ, to know who He is who looks after us and watches over us. I want to actually point out something that you, you won't see again in the English here. The words, it is I, are in the Greek, ego, emi. Some of you who have done study of languages would know that this phrase, it is I, is the same phrase that is used in the Old Testament to describe God when he says, I am, I am. You Remember that statement? I I want to reveal who who I am to you, Moses. Let me reveal myself. God says, I am, I am. (laughs) That's kind of the name of God. I am, I am. Well, that little word... The three words that Jesus says, it is I, is the Greek way of saying, I am, I am. In other words, what Jesus is doing with these disciples is to hear another evidence of his own divinity that he is Yahweh, that he is the great I am, that he is the maker of heaven and earth, that he is the one who rules the storm and rules the waves and rules all nature When he says, I am, I am, he is declaring himself to be the self-existent, eternal, unchanging, objective God. That's who Jesus is saying he is right here. He is declaring to be the one who has always existed. That in ages and ages past, he existed as the infinitely glorious maker of all things. It is to say that he will exist for all eternity as the glorious Lord of creation. It is to say that He is the one who rules all His nature that He made. It is all His. He is the one who creates and upholds the universe. When He says, it is I, He is saying, Ego and me, I am, I am, I am the God of creation. I am the God of Israel. I am the God of Moses. I am the God of the Scriptures. I am here. That is the reason that God gives them, or that Christ gives them, for not being afraid. Do you follow this? What is the reason that Jesus gave these men that they should not be afraid and they should take courage? It's simple. I am, I am. I am God. I am sovereign. Friends, there is so much comfort in the sovereignty of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is so much security to be found in the reality that our Savior, yes, the one who loves us and the one who came for us to go to die on a cross for us and conquer death for us and rose. He has now ascended in the heavens. He sits at the right hand of the Father. That one who showed such depths of love is also the one who holds the universe in his hands, who guides the stars, who pushes the winds where they need to go, who oversees his entire creation. Not a single atom or molecule in this universe is outside the reign of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we are secure, church, absolutely, totally secure And the way you fight the fear, and the way you fight the anxiety, And the way you make it through the storm is to remember that your Savior is I am. He is I am. He will not be thwarted. So verse 51, he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. Now he calms the storm. Again, demonstrating his power over nature. And they were utterly astounded. They didn't have a category for this. They're utterly astounded. They're out of their minds. But look at this, verse 52. This is interesting. For they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. Here's what this means. <laughs> if they had understood about the loaves in the previous section, they would not have been astounded. But they didn't understand about the loaves. Why not? Their hearts were hardened. Here's what happened. Jesus did an amazing miracle, fed thousands of people, and the disciples were even made part of that miracle, and after the miracle was done, they didn't get it why they had hardened their hearts. it's actually a very strong word that is meant to reflect poorly on the disciples. They were hardened. They were acting like the unbelievers in chapter three who hardened their hearts against Jesus. These disciples didn't get the miracle. They hardened their hearts. They, it could be that perhaps they were hoping Jesus became king right then and there, and they didn't like that he didn't, they didn 't like that he sent him away, and so they hardened their hearts. It could be that they didn't like all the circumstances that went on, that they hardened their hearts. We don't know exactly why. We do know that they didn't get the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 because they had hardened their hearts. And now, when the storm came, follow this, they were astounded. They were terrified. They couldn't handle it because they missed the previous miracle. But if they got that one, it would have helped them through this one. They hardened their hearts. Here's what this means is that sometimes jesus brings you through he demonstrates his power he demonstrates answer to prayer he demonstrates his generosity he demonstrates his compassion and you see it but it doesn't move you to worship it doesn't move you to deeper faith it's like when you've been praying for something the prayer gets answered and you go well probably would have happened anyway oh it was just a coincidence You hardened your heart against the thing that God was trying to teach you. And so God is always bringing us through these ways, uh, uh, these paths of our life that show us who He is again and again and again. And there are times we don't get the lesson. We harden our hearts against it. For whatever reason, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be in the boat. I don't want to go through the storm. We have these things that we're hardening our heart. We're missing the glory that is being displayed by our Savior And so we don't get it. And so when the next storm comes, we're like the disciples, still terrified, still astounded because we didn't learn the lesson. We didn't learn the lesson. What was the lesson? What was it that they should have learned from the loaves? What was it they should have learned from the feeding? This is what they should have learned, that my God is compassionate. He will take care of my every need. He is sovereign and majestic and omnipotent, and I can trust him. But if you don't learn that lesson, you go through life astounded at every moment of life that doesn't go how you hoped it would go you struggle with anxiety and fear they did not understand they were astounded so jesus speaks words of comfort still to these people even though their hearts were hard and it's a lesson to us to keep coming back let's learn the lesson of who jesus is be astonished at him church let me ask you has jesus become familiar so as you have stopped living with a sense of awe are you no longer amazed at who he is when was the last time your private devotions consisted of pure worship gratefulness adoration for who he is for who he is next section shows in verses 53 to 56 it's really a summary statement they cross over they get to Gennesaret and just it says in this verse 55 people are running all over the region to find him they're bringing their sick people in beds whenever they heard where he was they came to him they, they came to him in the village in the city in the countryside wherever it was they laid their sick at the the sick before him they asked that they might touch him even the fringe of his garment as many who touched it were made well Jesus is just overflowing with compassion. These people don't even know who he is. They they didn't have the same experience as the disciples had. They don't have any clue uh, who this Jesus really is. For all they know, he's a miracle worker. They will run to him just to get their health back. And Jesus is just so generous, just healing them, healing them, healing them. Church, let me just put this out before us. If this crowd just is running to him and they don't quite get it, how much more should we? who know Him, who know His power and His generosity and compassion, should be running to Christ again and again and again, morning and night, week in, week out, month in, month out, till the day we die running to Jesus all the time. And every time we feel at all anxious, at all fearful, at all concerned, every time we're brought to the end of ourselves, running, running, running to Jesus. Because we know who He is. Are you running to Him? Are you running to Him? If you haven't yet repented and run to Him for the very first time, if you're still holding Him at arm's distance, if you're still a person who just knows about Jesus, but you don't know Him, He invites you to know Him this morning. He has come. He lived. He died. He rose. He is alive right now, sovereign and willing to pardon your sin. Come for forgiveness and find it in abundance at the feet of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that those of us who need a refresher, just as these disciples did again and again and again, that we would be refreshed by a clearer, more majestic view of who you are that we would ask, seek, and knock for greater views of your glory. Lord, we, like Moses, ask that you would show your glory to us. And I pray that we would not harden our hearts when you reveal your glory to us. Strengthen us in the storms, but help us to trust you that we're there on purpose, that you're working in us, and that you're working to help us see who you truly are so that we can trust you, that our joy might be full in you. Thank you for this word which reminds us of all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.